Well, what we give to God, what we contribute to the work of the kingdom of God in this life has great effect, not only on our eternity, the not yet that we talked about last week, but also on the here and now. And although that video focuses predominantly on financial giving, the truth is the same thing can be said of every area of giving when we devote ourselves to kingdom work. And I think that the first guy in the video said it best at the end there when he said, from the time that he really started giving significantly to God, that was the moment when heaven and earth became a bigger and more real place for him. That's a great quote. And, and there's a lot of truth in that statement. Often the moment that God, uh, that the kingdom of God becomes a conscious reality for many believers post-conversion is the moment that we engage in kingdom work. Okay, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So this morning we're continuing our journey with Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem, leading up, of course, to the crucifixion and the resurrection, which we're including in this sermon series that uh, we've entitled Kingdom Come. And all along the way on this journey, we see these vignettes, these moments where Jesus takes pause to teach his disciples uh, or to answer questions from the religious leaders or to perform a miracle. And in those moments... We find that so much of what he is teaching and addressing is about the kingdom of God. In fact, it's all about the kingdom of God because that was the central theme of Christ's message. And so today we're going to continue traveling with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem in this message entitled Responsibility and Reward. We're going to be focusing on the parable of the ten minus in Luke chapter 19. The parable of the ten minus is really a story about stewardship, which has become a bit of a churchy word over the decades because we use it, that word, in church a lot. But stewardship is really just another way of describing our responsibilities, right? That which we are responsible for. So if you're uh, given responsibility over a machine at, at work, if it's your job to take care of that machine, to, to see to it that it's maintained properly, used properly, then it could be said of you that you are the steward of that machine, right? Likewise, you may be the steward of a vegetable garden or a, a flower garden at home. We can be stewards over many things. In fact, anything or anyone that we're responsible to protect, to care for, to nurture, to utilize properly, those are things or people that we are stewards of. And this is no truer anywhere than it is in the kingdom of God. Anything and everything that God has given us to be responsible for, we are stewards of. So parents are stewards of their children. We are stewards over our, our homes, our finances, our commitments, our jobs, our relationships. I'm responsible to be a good steward of this local church. He is the great shepherd, but I've been charged by God according to his word and confirmed by his voice and his calling in my life to lead this local church by serving this local body. And that responsibility is stewardship. And so consequently, as we'll see in our text today, good stewardship is often associated with reward. And likewise, poor stewardship generally produces negative consequences, even disaster at times. When I was a teenager... Uh, probably about 14 years old. Um, we were going to a church in North Carolina, a different pastor than the one we prayed for this morning. This was actually the guy before him. And he had three little boys who were little. And they asked me one day, he said, would you be willing to come over and babysit so my wife and I could go out? And I said, sure. How hard can it be, right? They're, they're preacher's kids. <laughs> 
right? How hard can it be? So I, the day came and my mother drove me there to the house and dropped me off and I went in and the pastor and his wife were there and the three boys were sitting on the couch like little angels watching the TV. And it was a beautiful little scene. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be the easiest money I've ever made in my life. I'm going to make some popcorn, I'm going to watch some movies and I'm going to get paid. This is great. And so the pastor and his wife gave me all the instructions, you know, everything I was supposed to do. And then they walked out the door and then something happened. It was like somebody flipped a switch. And as it turns out, these three little kids lived in that sort of gray area, somewhere between being really misbehaved and demon possession. It was unbelievable. Like they took off running through the house, screaming and yelling and chasing each other. And I could literally, you know, feel vibrations and hear noises of stuff in other rooms getting knocked over. And it was like total chaos. And I'm running through the house chasing these kids. And finally I caught one of them and I stuck him on the couch and I, I read him the riot act. Like I threatened him within an inch of his life and I said, don't you move. And then I went after the other one. And I chased around a while and I caught him and I brought him in and I sat him down on the couch and I gave him the same speech. And then I went off to look for the third brother and I couldn't find him. And about that time, I was in one of the rooms and you know, each time I'd passed through a room that I'd been through earlier, it was in worse shape than the time before. I'd gone through it, they're tearing the house apart. I can hear the door that comes into the living room from the garage open up. And I thought, oh no. So I turned around and ran back into the living room to find the two that are on the couch still there, but one of them is upside down. So his head is on the seat cushion, you know, his back is against the backrest and his feet are sticking straight up in there. And he's got his hands out by his face and he's going, you can't hit me, you can't hit me. And I look over just as I see the third son coming in from the garage where he had been with a lead pipe in his hand, about 18 inches long. And before I could shout no, that pipe was flipping end over and end across the room. And boom, it connects with the one that's upside down on the couch right between his eyes. So now there's blood all over him, on the couch, it's on the carpet. And the scene goes from like chaos to total bedlam. It's like completely out of control. I don't know what to do. Everybody, including me, is in a state of panic. And I called my mother. And, I, and I'm telling her what happened, and I don't know what to do. And she said, get a rag from the kitchen, wet it, stick it on his forehead, and don't do anything else until I get there. And so I'm holding this rag on this kid's head, and he's bleeding, and he's crying. And mom shows up. And it's amazing, you know, when someone, when a mother walks in the room, there's like almost a spiritual thing that happens with children. <laughs> it's like they instantly recognize that someone who actually has some authority is now on the scene. And they became little angels again. And so my mom had called the pastor and his wife on her way over and they showed up and I'm thinking I'm going to go to jail or, you know, get in big trouble. And they take the kid to the hospital and get him some stitches and a popsicle and he's right as rain. Everything was okay. In fact, I think I actually even got paid, which was amazing to me. It was the hardest money I've ever earned in my life. And it was a serious lesson in stewardship. My attitude was I didn't really have to do anything, just coast along and everything would sort of take care of itself. It was easy money when in reality I was supposed to be responsible for these kids and I didn't really take it that seriously to be honest and as a result I wasn't being a good steward for that which I'd been given charge over and I paid for it in a seriously traumatic experience that could have been far worse. By the way, I'll be offering babysitting services uh, for some extra money on the side if you want to sign up in the cafe later. 
In reality, though, I think that sometimes we view our responsibilities, those gifts that God has given us in the same way. See, he's gifted all of us in unique ways. Some excel in certain areas, talents and skills, resources, abilities, and often we use those to our own advantage, for our own benefit. And that can be just fine, but when it comes to kingdom work, it's easy to think that as long as we just believe, as long as we have faith in Christ and attend church and be nice to people, that everything else concerning the kingdom of God will just work itself out. However, the way that God works things out, the way that his kingdom is expressed is by working through us as we use the gifts that he's given us. And that is, of course, why he's given them to us, to be used for his glory, for his work, for his purposes first, even before we use them for our own purposes. Remember uh, Matthew 6, we talked about it last week. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What things will be added to you? All the things that we worry about for ourselves, right? Our personal needs, because God knows what we need. So when we concern ourselves with his kingdom first, he takes care of the needs of our own little personal kingdom, our family, our home, our job, our stuff, and so on. But that's not all, as we'll see today, that if we want to be rewarded in this life and fully rewarded in the next, if we want to maximize our potential in the kingdom of God on earth and in heaven, we have to not only accept the responsibility, the stewardship role that he's given each one of us, but we have to exercise those gifts. We have to use them to bring his purposes to bear in this world. And just to be clear, we're not talking about salvation here. That's a free gift. We're talking about responsibility and reward as stewards of the gifts that he's given us to be used for the sake of his kingdom. Okay? So let's take a look at what Jesus says about stewardship or responsibility and reward, specifically as it applies to our role as believers in expressing the kingdom of God in our world today. Let's turn to Luke. If you have your, your Bibles, Luke chapter 19, I think we'll have it on the screen. We're going to start in verse 11 where we see Jesus once again teaching his followers by way of parable. All right, verse 11 says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And notice here that verse 11 says that he told this story because he was near Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear. Luke loves to record the meaning of a parable, by the way, at the beginning. He's the only one that does that consistently, where usually you get, you know, the moral or the point of the story at the end. And so here Luke is alluding to the fact that this story was in response to those who were anticipating a sudden appearance of the kingdom of God, particularly as they neared Jerusalem where expectations of a, a political Messiah were very high at the time. And once again in this parable we see Jesus implying elements of both the now and not yet when he speaks of the kingdom of God. In fact, the now and not yet albeit a, a peculiar concept, is the foundation for understanding how and when the kingdom of God is and will be fulfilled on the earth and in heaven. And so that's where we started this sermon series last week. You'll remember we explored the fact that the kingdom of God is expressed both in the now, initially through Christ's time here on earth, and today as it is exercised through us, the church. And in the not yet, which refers to the final completed work, of the kingdom of God, which will be brought in fullness upon the second coming of Christ. 
And so here in this parable of the minus, Jesus continues to expound, or at least to refer to, both the now and the not yet elements of the kingdom of God to bring clarity or correction to the errant expectations that the majority of the Jews had at the time, that a spectacular overtaking of Israel by God, complete with signs and wonders in the heavens, was imminent. Okay, Jesus here is explaining that the anticipated final triumphant installation of the kingdom was not to come now, then, right then, but later. And yet at the same time, their rightful king, Jesus, was about to enter Jerusalem and be rejected by those that didn't want to be ruled by him. Right? They were blind to the very presence of the kingdom in their midst. They were missing this beautiful and profound moment as their awaited king was right there walking among them. Let's continue reading verse 12. He said, Therefore a nobleman was sent into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. At first glance, this sounds like the nobleman is leaving in order to take over a kingdom in some faraway place. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. The nobleman must leave for a period of time to a place where he will be given authority over the kingdom that he just left. Okay, so that he may return in the future in order to fully receive the kingdom. All right, the, the parallel that Jesus is making here is that he must leave this earth for a time to a faraway place with the Father where he'll be given authority over the earth so that he may return at a later time in the future in order to fully receive his kingdom here in this world. And interestingly enough, this whole concept was really fresh in the minds of the Jews at this point in history because various members of the Herodian family had gone to Rome to petition for, to seek a confirmation of royal power over their realms once they returned back to Jerusalem. But an embassy of Jews followed them closely on the heels, several times actually, the various Herods that were going, and they were protesting to the Roman emperor, we don't want this man to be our king. Okay, and so Jesus was very likely using these incidences as a basis for this parable that he was now teaching because it would have been very relevant and fresh in the, in the minds of the Jewish people, particularly near Jerusalem in that moment in history. Okay, let's keep reading verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Clearly, there's a parallel with the story and what happened with the Herods. But we can also see the parallel with the Jews who are not only going to reject Jesus and crucify him, of course, in the very near future, but also those who will refuse to serve him even at the end of the age. All right, and, and just so we understand the value assigned to each servant in this parable, uh, a minus was about three months wages for a laborer in that day, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, and again, it wasn't that the kingdom was received in a far-off place. It's that he had to go to the far-off place so that he could begin his rule or reign over the kingdom that was given to him upon his return. Just like the Herods that went into Rome. The kingdom was given to them in Rome. 
even though that wasn't the location of the kingdom where they would rule, right? But that's where their authority was granted. So when they returned to the kingdom, it could be received. Then only after Herod was granted his kingdom from the Romans could he return to express his rule and reign over it. Does that make sense? Likewise, Jesus who had to return to the Father in heaven, where he would receive authority and lordship over his kingdom. It says he would one day return to the earth to express or exercise his final rule and reign on the earth once and for all. Okay? And so now in the second half of verse 15, we get into the part about us. Our, our culpability, our uh, responsibility in how we steward that which has been given to us. So let's talk about responsibility. The back half of verse 15, we see that the returning king, it says, ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. This is the day of reckoning. I, the king, have given you resources that are precious to me and are to be used to the benefit of my kingdom. And so now it's time for you to give an accounting of exactly what you've done or not done, as the case may be, with what I've given you. It's a clear foreshadowing of the day when each of us will answer for what we've done or not done with all that God has given us. All right? 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Likewise, Romans 14.10-12, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay? And, and just in case you think that somehow you might be exempt from this day of reckoning, Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. And then if we back up in Romans 14, verses 7 and 8, Paul spells it out to the believers. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Okay? So there's no way around it. Whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, we are all responsible for what we do with that which God has given us. All right? And he has given each and every one of us a measure of that which is precious to him for the purpose of using it, investing it into his kingdom, that upon his return, we can show tangible, measurable increase for the, the, the sake of the kingdom of God. But still, I have people say to me, well, pastor, I really don't have anything to offer. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you most certainly do. We all have talents. We all have uh, gifts. Discovering those talents and gifts, if you aren't truly aware of them, uh, is probably another discussion for another day. But so often, they're closely tied to that which we are passionate about. Even what we tend to enjoy, what we're good at, uh, what we're gifted in. Okay? There are exceptions, of course. But that's usually a good place to start. What, what do you enjoy doing? Why do you enjoy doing it? More than likely because you have a talent for whatever that is. And that's a very simple place to start to discovering your talents for what God has given you. But to be sure, whatever talents you possess, they have come from God. We need to establish that. James 1.17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
that includes, by the way, our resources, which we all have to one measure or another. We, we all have time. Uh, we have money. We have material possessions, homes, creativity, uh, relationships. These are resources that can be used in the service and expression of the kingdom of God to accomplish his purposes on this earth. And he's given all of this to us for that very purpose. It isn't as if we've uh, earned what we have. Because even the effort and energy and abilities that we have exercised in this life to obtain everything that we possess are ultimately still from God. Our intellect, our desire, our motivation, our ability to work, that all came from God. And he requires from us that we use those gifts from him to accomplish his purposes, what, first. And then he takes care of all of our needs. In Romans 12, uh, 6 through 8, Paul teaches us, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see, everything that we have and everything that we are is a gift from God. Amen. And just like the servants in the parable, we have a responsibility to use those gifts, those talents, those resources in the service of the king. And, and just one more note about this part of the story. Because sometimes people will acknowledge their giftings, you know, their talents and resources, but they don't use them for kingdom work because they're afraid they may fail. And as we'll see in the story here, that was the case with at least one servant. And notice that the nobleman, the ruler, didn't spell out for each one of the servants what exactly they were to do with the resources that he'd given them. He simply said, engage in business until I come, verse 13. Sometimes the Lord will give you specific instructions about how to proceed with a particular project or a particular ministry. We certainly saw that in the case of Noah, didn't we? Very specific, detailed instructions. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he simply says, engage in business. In other words, get busy. I've given you gifts and talents and abilities and resources. Now go and use them to build my kingdom. And that's when creativity and motivation and internal drive to please the king has to kick in. That's what we see in some of the servants in this story. He didn't tell them exactly how to invest their resources. He simply said, engage in business. And at least some of them did, right? In creative ways, in different ways. And their efforts were honored. In fact, the only one who wasn't honored was the one who made no effort at all. See, sometimes we can get so paralyzed by the fear of failure that we fail to make any effort at all. But listen, God will honor your efforts as long as you're making an effort. Sometimes we worry too much about making everything perfect. And of course we're supposed to do our best. Certainly we need to raise a standard of excellence in everything that we do for God, without a doubt. But after we've done all that we can do, if it isn't perfection, that's okay. You may not see the same return as someone else, but he didn't make you someone else. He made you, you. Honestly, the only way that you can completely fail at anything that you do for God 
is to fail to do anything for God. You with me? The only way that you can completely fail at anything that you do for God is to fail to do anything for God because he will honor your efforts when you make an honest effort. And so when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're all responsible for what we do or don't do with that which he's given us, all right? Now, let's finish our text for today and we'll talk about reward. Luke 19 and we'll, we'll start on verse 16 where we left off. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. Okay, so the first servant doubled the ruler's money, which at any time in history would be an unusually high return. This is a, a strong indication of the extra effort, the wisdom and faithfulness that must have been employed by the servant in using what he'd, what he'd been given for the sake of the ruler, right? Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, I need new glasses. He said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Sorry. They're on the way, by the way. I'm waiting for them to, to come. These verses not only express a reward in this life, namely blessing by the king for being faithful and laboring for the kingdom, but the you shall future aspect of having authority over ten cities and five cities respectively implies an eternal reward in the next life. In fact, this is actually one of a number of passages in scripture that teaches us that there will be degrees of responsibility and reward in heaven. Did you know that? So in case you were thinking we'd all be floating around in the clouds, right, playing harps all day, I hate to disappoint you, but this life on earth is in many ways a trial run for eternity. We will have responsibilities in the next life. And just as there are degrees of punishment in hell, there are degrees of reward and responsibility in heaven. And we're going to be working in eternity. Some of us will be project managers. Some of us will be team leaders with Christ the King over all of us. And the best part is you're, you're guaranteed to love your work. Your boss will never be mean to you. Amen. You'll never feel underappreciated again. Uh, the weather will always be 72 degrees and blue skies. Your lunch break will always be the best meal you've ever eaten. No more leftovers in the lunchbox. We'll be working for Jesus Christ in a perfect world with perfect relationships. And our labor will be a constant joy. And the degree of our reward and responsibility given to each one of us will be a reflection of what we did with what he gave us while we were here. So think of this as a probationary period before you can achieve tenure for your eternal career. Right? For those football fans among us, this life is the great combine where we prove our mettle before we enter the big leagues. Okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? In other words, why didn't you make any effort at all? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. 
And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay, so the rest of the story here outlines the refusal of the last servant to do anything for the benefit of the ruler's kingdom. And remember, in verse 14, it said that at least some of his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, of course, this is a reference, a parallel to the situation between the Jews and the Herods. But it also represents all those who reject Jesus as the Christ and refuse to recognize him as their king. And consequently, they refuse to do anything in support of him or the kingdom. All right, those that completely reject him will pay a heavy price. And, and some don't like the description of the ruler here because in verse 21, for instance, uh, the unfaithful servant refers to him as a severe man. First of all, that doesn't mean selfish or unfair as we think of it in our English language. Okay, the Greek word for severe in verse 21 is austeros, which means strict in requirements, exacting. And of course, if we look back to verses 17 and 19, it shows the ruler to be abundantly generous and gracious. This is simply a picture of one who will not submit to Christ, standing before a generously giving and gracious king who will make good on his promises and hold us accountable to his word upon his return. We know full well what is expected of us, according to this book. Right? And those who choose to reject him and his instructions will be held accountable, the same as those who do recognize his kingship and choose to serve him. And so there is reward, right, based upon the stewardship of what we've been given. And as, as mentioned earlier, uh, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We know that he gives good gifts. He blesses us in this lifetime. In fact, uh, there are many blessings that we receive in this life that are described in Scripture. He blesses us with peace, with joy, relationships, with children, with material wealth, and most of all, we're blessed in this life by the communion that we have with the Holy Spirit, by him dwelling within us. And the more responsive the more obedient that we are in carrying out his plans, his commandments for our lives, the more enriched each of these blessings becomes for us on a daily basis, right? We have more peace, don't we? We have more joy. Our relationships are stronger. Our needs are met. And our communion with the Holy Spirit is deeper when we obey him. We are immeasurably blessed in this life without question. He, he rewards us for being faithful to, to him. However... And it's a big however. There's far more written in scripture about the reward in the next life than there is about the reward in this life. Why is that? Because the greater reward by far and away for followers of Christ is yet to come. Colossians 3, 23 through 25 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There is no partiality. Our true reward is the inheritance that we receive in Christ after this life. 
This is why uh, what he says in Revelations 22, 12 through 15, he, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, obviously this is a look into the future. Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Clearly, our true reward is coming in the next life. Let's look at it from Paul's perspective. At the end of his life, battle-weary, knowing that his time on, on earth here was drawing to a close, the great apostle, in a reflective moment, looks back and he pens these words to his young apprentice who will carry on the work. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, meaning in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. You see, Paul knows that his true reward has not yet come. Why does he say, I fought the good fight? Why does he compare living this life for Christ to a fight? Because it's hard. It's a struggle. It can hurt. Right? We have a very real opponent. Sometimes we get knocked down, but we have to keep getting up and fighting. Why does he say, I finished the race? Why does he compare this life to a race? Because it requires endurance. Right, Salve? Commitment. An iron will to continue even when we have to strain to keep going. And think about it. When does a fighter receive the championship belt? When does he get his prize? Halfway through the second round? No. He gets the belt when the fight is over. When he finishes it. When does the runner get her medal? When does she receive her trophy? Is it on the, the 11th mile? No. Of course not. She's given her trophy, her medal, after she finishes, crosses the finish line, after she finishes the race. Our reward comes at the end of the fight. It comes after we finish the race. And yet so many believers want their full reward now in the, in the second round. You know, in the 11th mile of the marathon. But listen, don't sell your birthright for a temporary meal. A temporary reward. Remember Cain, he, was, he wasn't satisfied. He wanted satisfaction right now. So much so that he gave up his true reward for temporary satisfaction. Sometimes we Christians are far too earthly minded. We're far too caught up in this world. When we need to be heavenly minded, we need to be kingdom minded. We need to keep our gaze fixed on the finish line and never stop fighting until he rings that bell and says, well done, good servant. I was listening to a preacher on the radio the other day. I think it was uh, James McDonald, if I'm not mistaken. And he was talking about suffering. And I thought he had a really great perspective. He said, we will all experience suffering. Both those who do good and those who do evil. The difference is, those who do good will suffer in this life. 
Those who do evil will suffer in the next. And then he asked a question, which would you rather have? Suffering for a little while in this life or suffering for all of eternity in the next? You know what? The same principle can be applied to our reward. Would you rather live for yourself and receive your reward in this life or live for Christ and receive your reward for all of eternity? Think about that. Compared to eternity, James in chapter 4 verse 14 says that this life is a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. And then we enter eternity, that life or death that never ends. So I'll simply ask you the same question again. Would you rather live for yourself and receive your full reward in this life or live for Christ and receive your reward for all of eternity? Let's pray.